0: I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's a wonderful privilege that we have to gather in freedom around your word each Sunday. Please help us to make the most of that freedom now as we look at this passage. Please use me in my weakness to preach it faithfully. And I pray that we would all learn from the good and bad examples that we see happening in this passage so that we'd be mindful to keep trusting in Jesus as our good Savior. Amen. Uh, Have you ever drawn the wrong conclusion about someone or something? Don't think about that picture yet. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps it was a neighbor who gave you a bad first impression but then kind of turned out to be quite lovely. Perhaps it was a TV series you thought would be boring and dry but it actually turned out to be quite engaging, funny. Uh, Sometimes our wrong conclusions are of no major consequence but then sometimes they are of huge consequence. Uh, This was certainly true for the 12 publishing companies who decided to reject J.K. Rowling's synopsis of her first Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So believe it or not, the first 12 publishers that J.K. Rowling went to all concluded that her work was not worth investing in. They all wrote it off for various reasons, too controversial, too weird, too long, too old-fashioned. It wasn't until Rowling pro- approached uh, Bloomsbury Publishing that she found someone who concluded that her work was worth investing in. And boy did that decision pay off. Uh, the Harry Potter series went on to become one of uh, to become the best-selling book series in history, over 500 million copies sold. Bloomsbury's partnership with Rowling made them famous and made them rich. Uh, Reflecting on his decision to go with Harry Potter, the CEO of Bloomsbury, Nigel Newton, he said this, we don't know what will become bestsellers and what won't, but we do know what are good books. Uh, Sometimes the conclusions we make really do matter. And it's like this with Jesus. The conclusions we reach about him really do matter. They're not inconsequential. In fact, to reach the wrong conclusion about Jesus is actually worse than being one of those 12 publishers who passed up on J.K. Rowling. But to make the right conclusion, reach the right conclusion about who Jesus is and what he's come to do for you, well, that's infinitely and eternally better than anything Bloomsbury experienced. With Rowling. In tonight's passage, and I encourage you to keep it open, Mark gives us a picture of the different conclusions people reach about Jesus and his ministry. As Jesus and his new band of apostles are becoming more well known in the public eye at this point in the gospel, Mark is kind of wanting us to see the ways people got it wrong and got it right about Jesus in that moment. And we need to learn from that so we can also draw the right conclusion about Jesus and ultimately find his forgiveness and a place in God's family that he'll be talking about tonight. The way I've broken up the passage is to look at the growing interest in Jesus that we see at the start, then the new community and the apostles, and then the different conclusions that people reach about Jesus. And that's where we'll really spend uh, the majority of our time this evening. But let's first look at the growing interest uh, that we see in Jesus here, reflective of the huge crowds at the start of this passage. Uh, Now, the MCG has long been associated with blockbuster sporting events, as you'll know, Uh, events that have attracted huge crowds. But did you know uh, that the event that still holds the attendance record at the MCG was not actually a sporting event, but a preaching event? In 1959, the American evangelist Billy Graham came and preached the good news about Jesus at the MCG and attracted somewhere between 130 and 140,000 people. Now, while this is pretty epic, the idea of large crowds uh, coming to hear about Jesus is not actually a new thing, a 21st century thing. In fact, we see it right here happening in our passage, don't we? In Jesus' own day, as Jesus preached about himself and demonstrated his miraculous power. See, three times Mark actually mentions how massive these crowds are. You can read it there in verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Uh, News of Jesus' ministry is spreading like wildfire at this point. Everyone was coming from everywhere to see him, to hear him, to be healed by him. And The crowds are so large that Jesus actually has to kind of jump into a boat on a lake to avoid getting crushed by them, verse 9. And it's not just the physically sick who are coming to Jesus, is it? It's the spiritually sick too those poor souls who were possessed by evil spirits. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Now here's a question for us off the back of that verse. Why with such a huge captive audience does Jesus choose not to reveal his true identity as the son of God? It does seem a little odd at first read. Uh, But if you've read Mark's gospel before, you'll know that this isn't the first time Jesus does it. In fact, he does it on a number of other occasions during his public ministry. Well, I think Jesus does this in order to prevent people from reaching the wrong conclusion about who he is. You see, the term son of God was often associated with another term, Messiah, in the uh, in the day of Jesus, the Messiah was the promised King of Israel, who would uh, the promised King of Israel, who God would send to save His people. Now, when the Jews of Jesus' day thought Messiah, they thought conquering King who would drive out their Roman oppressors. They didn't think suffering servant who would be killed by their Roman oppressors. But I think Jesus wanted time to teach people especially those who wanted to know him more, that he would be that conquering king, but only by being that suffering servant, dying for sin, raising, rising to life, and defeating the greater enemies of death and the devil. You see, if people knew that Jesus was God's saviour without knowing uh, how and from what he would save them, well, it's actually a recipe for a wrong conclusion. And Jesus doesn't want that. He wants people coming to the right conclusion about who he is and what he's come to do. And you see, we are actually all capable, even those who attend church and have for many years, of drawing the wrong conclusions about who Jesus is and his mission. You know, we can sometimes hear the name Jesus and think, healer who will fix my back pain. We can hear the name Jesus and think, life coach, who will make me a better person? We can hear the name Jesus and think, holy prophet, but not God. Jesus wants us to hear his name and think, son of God, who dies for my sins and rose again to life. And you see, this is why at Bundy, we actually always encourage you to join a midweek Bible study or a one-to-one Bible reading with someone because we actually all need opportunities to keep listening to Jesus in his word so that we allow him to set us straight about who he really is so that we don't fall into wrong conclusions about him. So that's the first thing but second let's think about uh, the new community of Jesus See, as public interest grows in Jesus, uh, and his new band, uh, Jesus forms his new band of apostles. Uh, he does, he gathers these men around him, and then he commissions them, uh, to minister alongside him. Let's read it from verse 13. Jesus went up to a mountain, summoned those he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles to be with him and to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter. To James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would also betray him. That was Jesus' community. Uh, Now, most of us have belonged to some kind of club or community. Uh, Our society is actually full of community groups. Uh, There are sporting clubs, craft clubs. When I was at La Trobe Uni, the choice of clubs was endless, I remember there was even a club called the More Beer Club. Uh, In a world full of community groups, what makes the community of Jesus so special? Well, it's actually because his community, unlike any other community, belongs to God. See, Jesus makes this clear in the deliberate parallels He draws with the formation of God's people Israel in the Old Testament and the calling of the Twelve. You might have noticed it there. Jesus as God has called, uh, just as God has called the Twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament into covenant relationship with Him on the mountain of Sinai, so too Jesus calls the Twelve apostles into relationship with Him on the mountain, verse 13. Symbolism is actually quite clear when you think about it. These apostles and all who now believe in their teaching about Jesus are drawn into God's people. They're included in the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching about. Such people join a community in which Jesus imparts to them God's forgiveness, God's spirit, God's eternal life. Bloomsbury's relationship with Rowling won't last forever, as good as it is, but our relationship as people in God's family does. You see, it's a wonderful and amazing thing to be included into the community of God. But here's the important thing. You cannot enter God's family unless you come to the right conclusion about who Jesus is. Unless you see him as the one he claims to be, the son of God who dies for your sins and rises again to life. Unless you see that, unless you hear him say those words and believe it, you will not be part of God's family. You see, everything hinges on making the right conclusion about Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis famously uh, argued that there were basically three Uh, conclusions people draw about Jesus when they actually find out that he claimed to be the son of God rather than just a good moral teacher. Lewis argued that such a big claim by Jesus warrants, well, these big conclusions, that he's either a lunatic, no idea what he's talking about, a liar set out to deceive people, or the Lord is, as he claims, the son of God. Uh, Lewis writes, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him uh, Lord and God. Well, Mark now in in this passage shows us three different conclusions that kind of follow that pattern that Lewis uh, just spoke about. You see, you've got Jesus' family who kind of thinks he's a bit mad. Then you've got the religious guys, the scribes, and they think he's bad, possessed. But then there are those uh, who stand, uh, sit at Jesus' feet and see him as someone worth listening to. See, whether you're new to Christianity or have been a Christian for a long time, We can actually all learn from these different positions that Mark is showing us here. So I just want to think about each one. So, first, Mark shows us the wrong conclusion of thinking Jesus is mad. See, look at verse 20. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered around again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. Now, we might expect the religious leaders uh, to be calling Jesus mad uh, after the last few um, passages that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. But it, I think it shocks most of us to think it was actually Jesus' own biological family who were making that call. His own family were literally saying he's out of his mind. Uh, They've heard about the miracles, the teachings, the huge crowds. I suspect they've also heard about his conflict with the religious rulers and they think things are getting out of control. He's losing the plot. He's making enemies with the wrong people. And so they come to restrain him, verse 21. You can kind of imagine them wanting to sidle up beside Jesus and just kind of say, okay, thanks, Jesus. Come along now. Time to go. We can talk all about these things later. Now, as much as we might kind of understand where Jesus' family is coming from, Mark is telling us that there is a huge problem with what they're doing. See, at a fundamental level, Jesus' family is saying that they know better than Jesus. They draw the conclusion that they are the sane ones, and it's actually Jesus who's the crazy man in this moment. Do you see the problem? You see, the fact that this comes from Jesus' own family actually should remind us that it's possible to feel very close to Jesus and yet still get things tragically wrong about him. See, it's not so much that we might think of him as a bad guy, but someone who just really doesn't understand the way of things, someone that we need to kind of restrain, in certain areas. So it's actually good to think, what might that look like for us? Where do we try and do that? Oh, Jesus is great, but his message that he's the only way to God, well, that's a bit nuts. Oh, Jesus is lovely, but his suggestion that every person's a sinner is a little misguided. I love Jesus, but his words about human sexuality are just outdated and kind of need updating. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm just not convinced Jesus was entirely being serious when he said, Love your enemies. That's a little crazy. You see, if Jesus' own family can get this wrong, actually, we can get this wrong too. Now, in time, Jesus' family does actually come around, but it's important to note at this stage that their attitude to Jesus is keeping them on the outside of the community of God's people. And we kind of see that. In the last verse, if you look ahead, where Jesus contrasts his family who are standing on the outside, verse 31, with those he considers his true family, listening to him, not calling him crazy, verse 34. You see, it's not possible to be a member of Jesus' people and conclude at any level that Jesus is mad and can't be trusted. But there's another more sinister conclusion that mark shows us here isn't there it stands side by side this one it's the conclusion that jesus is actually bad. Now this conclusion comes from the religious scribes who like the pharisees who we looked at last week had grown to hate jesus. He didn't play by their rules. He was claiming to have God's authority to forgive sin. He was calling sinners, not the supposed righteous, into God's kingdom and community. And see, look at the conclusion they draw about Jesus off the back of the reports that he was casting out demons. You see it there in verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Now, just let that accusation sink in for a moment, what they've actually just said. These guys are basically saying that what is good about Jesus is actually evil. They're basically saying, don't believe your lying eyes, people. It's because he's possessed that he can dispossess others. He's not working by the power of God, but the power of Satan, don't you see? So how does Jesus respond to that kind of accusation against him? he just points out at the start just how silly it all is. And you see it in verse 23, don't you? So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. Jesus is saying, what sort of winning strategy is this if I'm Satan? What sort of king goes around killing all his foot soldiers in order to win a war? It makes no sense. A kingdom divided cannot stand. See, Jesus' works aren't evidence that he's in league with Satan. They're evidence that he's opposing Satan, busting into his domain, binding him up, plundering from him all those poor people whom he had taken captive. That's what Jesus says in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. You see, Jesus has come to give life, not take it, He's come to rescue people from the dominion of darkness, of Satan, and bring them into the kingdom of light, to use Paul's words in Colossians 1. You see, the conclusion of the scribes here was ridiculous as it was personally condemning for them. You see, look at the chilling words that uh, that Jesus actually says to them next. Verse 28. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now I think it's worth pausing to reflect a little bit about Jesus' words on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which... Uh, A lot of Christians refer to as the unforgivable sin. You may have heard that. Uh, I wonder if you guys have ever worried that you've committed this unforgivable sin. Uh, If you have, you're not alone. Uh, Christians throughout church history have worried that they have either willingly or unwillingly blasphemed the Holy Spirit and then lost all hope of forgiveness. I discovered in my reading this week on uh, this passage that uh, this was a particular concern for the Puritan Christians of the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, One of the English Puritans, John Child, became so convinced that he had committed this sin that he actually descended into a pit of despair and took his own life because he believed it was no longer worth living. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Now, there are a couple of things I want to say about this. Now, the first is that it's not so much a moment of sin, but more a hardened heart. You see, people sometimes think that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit kind of refers to a moment in which maybe you've cursed God's name, perhaps in some kind of an emotional outburst, and because it's unforgivable, well, you don't get forgiveness at that point no matter how much you plead for it. And that's where the distress comes, isn't it? See, in this way of thinking, uh, you kind of see yourself like a guy hopelessly banging on God's door, begging for forgiveness, but he shut his ears to you. But notice in verse 29, Jesus doesn't say that a person will be refused forgiveness, but they simply never have it. And that's because it's actually the person who has shut their ears to Jesus, not the other way around. See, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is a settled decision of the heart to walk away from the only source of forgiveness, which is Jesus. And you see, that is what the scribes are doing here. Throughout Mark's gospel, their rejection of Jesus is not pictured as a momentary slip of the tongue or something that they come to regret, but a settled and hardened rejection of Jesus after they had witnessed all that he said and done. They had become comfortable with their conclusion that his works were from the evil one, not God's spirit. So it's actually not like the guy banging on the door. The door to Jesus' forgiveness is actually always open, and verse 28 says that, doesn't it? All sins will be forgiven. It's actually more like a person who has decided to walk away from that door and never return to it because they think that door is bad or useless. You see, this is really, in many ways, a sin of religious people. Uh, It's kind of like being the kind of person who knows about Jesus, knows about his gospel, but then looks at that and says, it's not for me. I'm walking away. And I actually think that's where Hebrews 6 is going as well when it says these words. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away. See, how does someone have forgiveness when they reject the only one that can give it to them? Where do they go after that? And make no mistake, this sin has its kind of contemporary forms in our church today. I don't know about you, but over the past few years, I've noticed that a number of kind of former high-profile Christians have actually been quite public and comfortable about their newfound rejection of Jesus, taking to social media. Now, these people may not call it something like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think the new term has actually become Christian deconstructionism. If you haven't heard it, it's kind of described as the process by which you deconstruct all the unhelpful ways of thinking that you have as a follower of Jesus and then set your mind free to live apart from him. Uh, Josh Harris is a pretty well-known example of this. He's been quite public about his thoughts. Uh, After decades in Christian ministry, he speaks of kind of deconstructing his faith, no longer considering himself a Christian, and for a time, they're actually setting up a course to help others who may want to deconstruct their faith too, called "Reframe Your Story." Another Christian, for, another former Christian writer, who's also the son of a well-known pastor in the states, uh, he too has begun a process of deconstructing his faith, and he's taken a TikTok to make that known. In one of the videos he he does, he he really sees, he contrasts what he sees as the fear and guilt of Christianity with the comfortable meaninglessness of the universe. This is what he says. Nothing really matters. And this is what gives us the freedom to feel our own meaning, to feel it with ease instead of the sense or fear of guilt. This, my friends, is the gospel. You See, in that view, the gospel is not that Jesus died to save you, but that the universe is meaningless. A blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not so much the sin of saying words like that per se, but the hardened heart that kind of lies behind it. It's the conclusion that the gospel of Jesus, which brings life, which the person has possibly tasted of, experienced, seen, heard, proclaimed, the conviction that that gospel is not really gospel at all, not good news, and should be rejected. Now, we always pray that God would bring back someone from that position. But the warnings of Scripture and the experience of church history suggest that many remain comfortable in that position for good. We don't want to go there. We don't want to exclude ourselves from the community of God's forgiven people by inching towards a rejection of Jesus and a conviction that he's actually bad, not good for us. So what if you're someone then who has been worried that they've committed the unforgivable sin? Well, I think it's fair to say that if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin... You haven't committed it. You see, no one who has a scribe-like hardness of heart worries that they've sinned against Jesus. And you see, it's easy to get so caught up in Jesus' talk of a sin that never finds forgiveness that we actually miss his promise in verse 28, where he actually promises that all sins and whatever blasphemies that are uttered will find forgiveness. You see, Jesus is actually saying to those of you who are distressed about something terrible you've said or done against God that there is forgiveness. Jesus is abundantly merciful and will always forgive those who seek it. The door is open to you, not closed. So if you're anxious about this, let me be very clear about what Jesus offers you. Jesus will forgive you for that time you got angry at God and made all sorts of derogatory comments about him. Jesus will forgive that time you made an irreverent joke at his expense. Jesus will forgive the shame that you feel for that moment that you denied him in front of others. Jesus will forgive that period you went through uh, that period you went through in which you doubted him and dabbled with the world. See Jesus never turns away an anxious soul who recognizes sin and seeks out his forgiveness. People will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. See there is comfort in jesus words as well as the clear warning. Not to conclude that he is bad. So Mark's presented us with two uh, wrong and devastating conclusions that we can make about Jesus. That he's mad, that he's bad. But in the last few verses we see the kind of at- conclusion, the attitude that we actually should be reflecting when it comes to Jesus. That he's worth listening to. Uh, read with me from verse 31 click is not working anymore his mother and brothers came and standing outside they sent word to him and called him a crowd was sitting around him and told him look your mother and brothers and sisters are outside asking for you he replied to them who are my mothers and brothers looking at those sitting in the circle around him he said here are my mother and brothers whoever does the will of god is my mother and sis- is my brother and sister and mother now, it's kind of easy to read those final words and think Jesus being a bit harsh to his family. But actually, the Gospels leave us in no doubt that Jesus loved his family. In fact, you see the depths of Jesus' love for his mother as he's hanging on a cross, as he tells the Apostle John to treat her as if she were his own mother. Jesus' words here don't convey the lack of, a lack of concern for his family. They are actually here to show us the amazing depths of relationship that his people have with him, and therefore God. They are considered his true spiritual family. I remember a slogan um, that the RACV used on their ads back when I was a kid, and it said, you're a member, not a number. I.e., we don't just consider you some kind of impersonal code on a computer system. You're a valued part of the community. Well, Jesus is saying something much greater than that. He's saying you're not just a member, you're a brother, a sister, your family to me. So just let that sink in. The incarnate Lord of the universe considers you a family member if your faith is in him. Someone he loves deeply, someone he fights for, someone he's willing to die for, which he does at the cross for your sins. It's a wonderful thing for the Son of God to say, you are my family. So what are these people around Jesus getting right that puts them in the family category? Well, I think the answer is that they're simply listening to Jesus, not dismissing him as crazy, not rejecting him as bad, listening to him. You see, that's what I think it means to do will of God. That's what I think Jesus is saying in verse 31. And if we want clearer evidence that listening to Jesus is God's will, we just have to flick ahead to Mark chapter 9, where the voice of God actually breaks through the cloud and says of Jesus, this is my beloved son, listen to him. See, God's will is that we listen to Jesus, recognizing him to be God's son believing him when he calls us to trust him as both the saviour of our sin, the saviour from our sin, and the Lord of our lives. Now maybe you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, but you want to keep listening to Jesus, hearing more of his good news that will save you. Well, you might like to actually sign up to our Christianity Explored course that Andrew mentioned beginning in the next week or so. And you can let us know that via our website but he's actually worth continuing to hear from. But to the rest of us, well, I think we should let this final picture of people sitting around Jesus be an encouragement to us, an encouragement to do likewise this year. See, God's will is that we actually gather as his family around the Lord Jesus and listen to him. That's his will for us. And this is what we seek to do every week as we come here and hear Christ speak to us through his word. This is what we actually need more than anything. It's Christ's word. His word will encourage us to keep trusting God when the next curveball of COVID comes our way. His word will comfort us with the hope of eternal life when we are faced with whatever sickness and death this year throws at us. His word will assure us of our salvation when maybe we go through a period of uncertainty or grief over sin this year. His word will help us to love one another when we actually find that tough, as sometimes we do. So let's keep making the right conclusion about Jesus this year. He's not mad. He's not bad. He's the son of God who died and rose again, and he's worth listening to. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Help us to be people who make the right conclusion about Jesus, not dismissing him as mad or rejecting him as something that is bad for us. Help us to keep seeing him as the great son of God he is, the one who loved us and saved us through his death for us, the one who is always worth listening to. Amen.